Welcome. We are in the middle of our series on elements of life. Can everybody hear me? Okay, is the mic good? Okay, good. We're in the middle of our series called Elements of Life. We're systematically looking at different elements of our faith that are really uh, crucial to the way that we understand our faith and, and consequential in how we live our lives. And God, through the book of Genesis, is he's giving us clues. He's revealing some basic elements of life that will help us to better understand who he is, who we are, and this world that he has created us to live in. So tonight we are concluding our three-part mini-series on faith. Next week, Jesse will be preaching on the next element in our series, so that's exciting. But tonight we're going to be finishing up looking at the life of Abram, who at this point of the story is now Abraham, so that's fun. It's exciting. So to recap, week one, we looked at how every step of faith begins. That God, he speaks, he calls, he prompts, and then we step out in obedience and faith. And then what we looked at last week is in our walks with Jesus, in our walks with God, it's inevitable that we will go into a valley of faith, a place where we might wonder if uh, we're a fool for following Jesus or have that moment like, what have I done? Have I made a terrible mistake? And what we saw last week is that Abram was in this exact same valley um, in his life too, this valley of faith. And we saw that he had to do two things in order to get through it. He had to zoom out and focus on uh, the majesticness and the infinitude of God. And then we have to zoom in to the cross and see that our God is both tenacious and trustworthy, and that is the God that we serve. And so tonight, we are going to finish uh, looking at faith. There's so much, so many elements of faith that we obviously didn't have time to cover, but we're going to finish with a final element tonight. Before we do, I want to tell a quick story. So when I was growing up and learning how to drive uh, in my parents' car, they had, uh, the car had a slight pull to it where if you just kind of like let it go, it veered to the left. Does anybody, has anyone ever driven a car like that? Okay. <laughs> That's good. I actually knew Jeff drove a car. We talked about this in here. Um, and so I had to compensate when I was driving. You have to compensate to, to make it go straight. And um, I didn't know that if you, uh, so what this is, it's a, it's a problem with the alignment. If you know anything about cars, it's when your car gets disaligned and um, you gotta fix it. But if you don't fix it, something that could happen, which happened to me, is you could have a blowout. So I was driving um, up to San Antonio, if uh, you're familiar with Texas, and um, our car, our tire just blew out um, while we were on the highway. We had to pull over to the side of the road. And so that was a motivation to go and get the alignment fixed. And I learned a couple of things when we took it to the mechanic. The first thing is this, that when your, um, your car gets misaligned, then it starts to, to veer over and it starts to drift. That I knew. But what I didn't know is if you let it stay that way, it slowly uh, wears down certain parts of the tire, which uh, make it highly susceptible to uh, the tire having a blowout. And, that's what happened to me. That's what I did not know. Uh, so periodically, you're supposed to get your car checked, have it hooked up to this machine, see if your car is aligned or not. If it's not, the mechanic can make some slight adjustments. And then in theory, the dream is you'd be able just to let go of your steering wheel and it would continue going on straight down the highway, is the theory. The reason why I bring this up is because we're going to see today 
that in our journeys of faith, sometimes it's necessary to get a realignment and to make sure that we are aligned in our journey. Because we can start off our journeys of faith and kind of just be smooth sailing straight ahead. But if we're not careful, we can hit some bumps in our faith that can cause us to slowly veer, to slowly drift. And sometimes it's so subtle that we might not notice it. And that's why I love our passage tonight. We're going to see tonight that Abram, Abraham now, he gets an alignment check. And he was doing pretty well in his journey of faith, but then God saw that he was starting to drift a little bit. And that's where we pick up in our passage tonight. It gives us a wonderful but very, very tense picture on what it looks like when we need this realignment in our faith. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 22. That's where we're going to pick up. But uh, let me set the stage for a second. So we have skipped quite a bit of chapters since last week. There is a lot that has happened that I don't have time to recap for you now. But fortunately, uh, you guys could always go and read that or listen to it online. But with the semester running out, we kind of have to pick and choose the high points. So we're going to be in chapter 22 today. But in the previous chapter, in Genesis chapter 21, the long-awaited promised child has arrived. Abraham and Sarah have now waited 25 years for this child to arrive. Abraham, it's been 25 years since he was called to leave his family to the land, or to leave everything that he had known, take Sarah to the land that God was calling him to. It's been 25 years. Abraham is 100 at this point, and Sarah is now 90. And they finally have this promised child, Isaac, in their arms. And can you imagine meeting Isaac for the first time? Everybody who came, everybody who came to their house has surely heard their story. I bet you Abraham and Sarah uh, told this story to everybody who came to meet, that they waited 25 years for this child to come, that God had promised them that they were going to have a child, and people thought that they were crazy. They waited for two and a half decades, and now look, he's finally here. And people probably thought they were crazy 25 years sooner, leaving behind everything that they knew, and waiting year after year after year, still believing that this God was going to fulfill their promises. And then he finally did. They had that child in their arms. And this was such a picture, um, such a testament to the faithfulness of God. Isaac is literally a miracle child here. And so now all of the dreams that God has spoken to Abraham are manifested in this little child. The significance of this 25-year journey that they were on is now manifested in Isaac. All of the hopes and dreams of Abraham's life is now rested upon his son. I bet you there's probably not a man who longed for a son more than Abraham longed for Isaac. And I think most of us here are not even 25 years old yet. And this is how long they've waited for a child. And so there is a gap. That's what happens in chapter 21. And there's a gap of about 15 years between chapter 21 and chapter 22. And in those 15 years, Abraham has been raising his precious son. And you can imagine the type of affection that he probably had for Isaac. There is probably no child who was the apple of his father's eye quite the way that Isaac was. So that's where we are right now. And then we pick up in chapter 22. And in verse 1, 
it says this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. So we're going to stop right there real quick. What we are going to read, the narrator wants us to know from the very beginning that this is a test. That this is the, the warning label, don't try this at home. The narrator wants us to know before we get any details of the story that what's about to happen is just a test. So spoiler alert, we're not ever supposed to read this thinking that God had desired for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. The narrator tells us from the very beginning that this is a test to check on the alignment of Abraham's heart. And so our focus as we read through this story is not going to be, will Isaac get sacrificed? But it's going to be, will Abraham obey God in faith? And Abraham here is getting ready to go through one of the hardest tests of his life. So verse 1, sometime later, about 15 years, God tested Abraham. He said, Abraham, here I am, he replied. So God calls out to Abraham, and I love Abraham's response here. He says, here I am. And this throughout scripture is a pretty sacred response. We see that this is how Moses responds when he sees the burning bush. We also see this response from Samuel. And it carries this connotation, it's this intimate phrase that signifies that the person is willing and ready to listen and obey. Here I am. And so Abraham says this, but I would venture to say that he couldn't have imagined what God would say next. And then in verse 2, it says, Then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. So when Abraham said, here I am, he did not expect this. Let's like read this one more time. Take your son, the son that you have waited for two and a half decades for, your only son, Isaac, who you love. This is a repetition over and over. We are meant to feel the full weight of what Abraham must have felt. Your only son. This is the one that you have all of your hopes and dreams in. This is the one who you have your security for the future. And your only son, who you love, who is the affection of your heart. The one that your life has revolved around for 15 years. Take this son and take him up to the mountain. So what's going on here? We are given no response from Abraham. He doesn't say anything. And so we're left to imagine what he might, must have felt when he heard this, what he must have been thinking. And of course, we can read this knowing that this wasn't God's plan because we were warned that this was a test. But it still begs the question of what is going on here. And over the past 15 years, God has watched something happen in Abraham's heart. It's been 40 years at this point since the initial promise of God. And Abraham, though he had some bumps on the road, he lived a life that was focused and he found his meaning and purpose in God, in God's word, and in God's promises. And now after 25 years of waiting and 15 years after raising his son, now the center of his world the source of his hope, the source of his identity, the source of his security and his happiness has begun to shift. And it's shifting away from God. And it's shifting towards Isaac. And now God is no longer the center of his identity. Isaac is. 
Now, um, his hope is no longer in God's word. It's in Isaac. His affection is no longer supremely to God, but it's in Isaac. It's Isaac that holds the key to his heart now. And this was a shift that probably didn't happen overnight. It probably didn't happen in a matter of days. But it was a shift where Abraham slowly drifted, slowly started to veer. And you can sense that there's this dangerous shift happening in his heart. And his center, the thing that he has built his life on, is slowly changing. And God has been watching this for years. And he has seen that Abraham has started to drift. And so God graciously comes to Abraham to realign his heart. I think we can read this and think, how is this gracious? How is this merciful? And we see that in Romans 1, it says that the ultimate judgment God could give us is to let us embrace our idols and not set us free from them. It says that for some people, he just gives them over to the idolatry of their heart. But what we are going to see in this passage is that God will fight for Abraham's heart. And so here is the big question of the text. Here is the big question of the story that we're about to read. Who was going to be Abraham's ultimate? Who was going to be Abraham's ultimate? What was going to be Abraham's chief affection? Would he choose the promises of God or the God of the promises? Would he choose the blessings of the covenant or the God who made the covenant? What was going to be the ultimate thing in his life? And that's what this story is about. So God puts Abraham face-to-face with this question, what is going to be his ultimate? What is going to be the thing that he builds his life around? And he does this by putting to the test the thing in Abraham's life that has the biggest potential to becoming an idol, and that's his son. And so we don't really see a verbal response from Abraham, and we'll pick it up in verse 3. It says, Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey, He took with them two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God told him about. So we don't get any debate. We don't get any discussion. We just get this silent movement that he's saddling up the horses, that he's cutting, that he's setting out. And this silence brings a sense of tension for what must be going through Abraham's mind right now as he's setting out on this journey. Verse 4, it says, on the third day, so he had three days on this journey to reflect, to soberly reflect on this reality and try to make sense of it all. So on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. So we see that they arrive and Abraham tells his servants to stay there. And we see Abraham has somehow reconciled that the God, the promises of God would not contradict what God is asking him to do. So the promises of God would not contradict the commands that God has given him. He doesn't know how this is going to work out, but he has faith that, that this is not going to end with Isaac dead. And, and in Hebrews, it says that perhaps Abraham thought that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He doesn't know. He doesn't know what is going to happen. But he has faith uh, 
uh, that the command of God was not going to contradict the promise that he made to him. So he's unsure of what this journey is going to be, but he is trusting with he is trusting God. We see in verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, and he placed it on his son Isaac. And we see himself carry the fire and the knife, and the two of them went on together. So we see Abraham uh, load the son of his dreams with the wood that he would be sacrificed on. And this is one of the reasons that we think that, that Isaac was probably around 15 at this point, because he would have been old enough and strong enough to carry the wood on this journey. But this would be a long and lonely walk of obedience and sacrifice. It would be both literally and figuratively a very arduous journey up this mountain. In verse 6, I'll read it again. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, and he placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife, and the two of them went up together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. In other words, we can see that there's this sense in Abraham's heart that this is somehow going to work out, though he's not quite sure how yet. In verse 9, it says, When they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, and he laid them on the altar on top of the wood, and then he reached out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. So we have this image here of Abraham with the knife, getting ready to slay his son. And it's like we're watching this in slow motion. And then verse 11 says, But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. I think that's, that's so fascinating. The angel is calling out to him, Abraham, Abraham, and he responds with the same response he gave God earlier. Here I am, your obedient servant willing to obey verse 12 it says do not lay a hand on the boy he said do not do anything to him now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son from me your only son He's saying now I know that the chief desire and the chief affection from your heart is God and in the midst of this test Abraham's heart is realigned away from finding his soul identity and security in Isaac, to realign to finding that in God. And what we have to know about this story is that it is fundamentally a story about idolatry. The biggest thing that can throw off our alignment in our walk with God is when these idols start to take a hold of our heart. And oftentimes, they're not things that we would initially guess or recognize, but they slowly start to take a hold, and we slowly start to veer a little bit. We start to drift. And I think a lot of times when we think of idols, we might think of, of golden calves or little figurines. And in the story, we see that those idols are not those things. They're not blocks of wood or they're not metals that were used to worship um, at the shrines or the temples, but they are things that are much more sinister and, and subtle and seductive than that. 
So what I want us to do with the rest of our time, I want us to talk about uh, what are these idols, what are some possible idols in our lives, and how do we respond to that? And so what is an idol? I think an idol typically deals with three areas of our heart. The first is these idols become the root of our identity, becomes the source of our value, it becomes the source of our significance, the source of our meaning. And for Abraham, this became Isaac. The second thing is they become our source of security. They become the thing that we place our hope in, the thing that we can say, as long as this is going okay in life, life is going to be good. As long as this one thing is going okay. It's the thing that we put our trust in. It's the source of our security. And for Abraham, that was also Isaac. And then the third thing is it is the chief affection of our heart. It's the place of our deepest desires and our deepest dreams. It's the chief affection of our hearts. And so when something becomes the root of your identity, the source of your security, the source of your greatest affection, there we will find our idols if we don't find God. And when something becomes the root of these things, the root of our security, the source of our, of our identity, the chief affection of our hearts, we will have to worship those things with this religious devotion. And here's why, because those things, they get the power to tell you if you're a success or if you're a failure. They have the power to tell you what your hope and your future will be. And these things, if they have the power to capture the affection of your hearts, that means that they have the power to break your heart as well. These idols, like we see, will devastate your life. But something that we see in this story is just like Abraham, these idols are not bad things in our lives. They are rarely inherently bad things. In fact, they are often good things that we have instead made our ultimate things. And when that happens, these good things, they can become destructive. They can set us on a trajectory where we slowly start to drift away from God and the desires that he has for our lives. And so let me give you some popular idols in our culture today. For many of us, uh, there is an idol of money and possessions. We even see um, a story, we know a story about a young man who was very wealthy and he had a lot of possessions and he made, um, he made these things, he made this wealth and he made these possessions the center of his identity and the source of his security and the affections of his heart and so much so that we even know him as that. We know him as the rich young ruler. That's what we know him as. And he asked Jesus, what must he do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells them that he has to sell all of his possessions, give it to the poor, and then he can follow him. And what's so interesting about that is he didn't ask that of his other disciples. But with him, he went straight to the idol in his life. Went straight to the idol and said, if you want to follow me, you have to give up that which you've placed your hope and security in. You have to give those things up because Jesus refused to be added to the list of idols in his life. And Jesus will never make peace with our idols. The second thing that could become idols in our life could be our careers. I had a friend who worked for a top five accounting firm 
And he said he felt the Lord tell him one day, don't let the enemy bind you with your blessings. In other words, it's good to have a good job. It's great to have a job with great earning potential. But don't become bound by these things. Don't ever place your hope and your identity and your security in your career. Because when we do that, we're not really free. I think for me, uh, work as a pastor, so that's an objectively pretty good job for the kingdom. And I was talking to one of my friends one day, and we were talking about work, and she looked at me and she said, Bonnie, if you woke up tomorrow and were no longer the Kyle for pastor, would you be okay? And that revealed to me that it's so easy to place our identity in the things that we do, even if those things are for God, as opposed to placing them in God ourselves. And I realized in that moment that it's these great things that even when we're just slightly misaligned, can slowly turn into ultimate things if we let them. For others, their idols are romantic relationships. I think this is a big one in our culture. If I can just be in a relationship, then I know I will have value. If I can just be in a relationship, then I can have security in the future or that I can know that I'm loved. Here's how we can spot the idols in our life. You can tell what's an idol in your life by your willingness to compromise your integrity and the things you believe in your convictions to get them. When you value those things more than you value following Jesus. For some of us, it's beauty and fitness. And I think that this one is an especially seductive idol in our life because it's one uh, where the standards of beauty are so elusive and the standards for fitness is never satisfied. It always demands more. It's an idol that constantly needs another sacrifice made to it. Because you can always work out more. You could always lose one more pound. You can always gain a little bit more muscle. Jesus wants to set us free from this so that we can experience this affirmation and this acceptance. And C.S. Lewis says in Screwtape Letters, uh, Screwtape, so the evil character, he says it this way. He said, this would be my strategy to make the role of beauty more and more important and at the same time making its demands more and more impossible. And that's the culture that we live in. And for some of us, it could be success or our grades or our GPA. Again, good things, but things that can become the ultimate things. And when we get so wrapped up in finding our identity in our grades and in our performance, then the next paper, the next exam, the next group project has the power to tell you if, you can, if you're going to be a success or a failure. And Jesus wants us to know that he is the one that we can trust, that he is the one where our value is, not in our recent test scores. And so this list can go on, the esteem of others, safety, comfort, sports. The list can go on and on and on. And it's not a bad thing to have a good GPA. It's not a bad thing to be athletic or fit. It's not a bad thing to have a good job. These things are rarely bad things. But they're good things that become the ultimate things in our life. And none of these things could be the chief affections of our hearts. Because they can bind us, they can cause us to drift, 
They can keep us from flourishing in our journey of faith. And so Abraham, what he does in this story is he answers this question of willingness. Was he willing to let go of his idol? And then God answered the will question. He gave Isaac back to Abraham. Only now Isaac was in his proper place. Abraham got Isaac back, but Isaac was no longer the center of his world and the source of his community. He could be loved and he could be enjoyed and not have to bear the weight of his father's worship. And I have seen God do this many times, where I think there's often times in our lives where he asks us that same willingness question. Not so much that he doesn't want us to have these things. Maybe he does. But he wants to know if we're willing to lay them down. If we're willing to give up these things that we might want the most. If we're willing to lay them down and find our ultimate security in him. And sometimes God wants us to put our Isaacs on the altar to know that we are willing to lay them down anytime, anywhere, in obedience to God. So let me give you um, a few questions that we can ask ourselves to help us identify what these idols might be in our life, because I think that they're really hard for us to tell in our own lives. But the first one is this. What is it that you fear the most? What makes you full of anxiety because the thing that you're scared the most to lose could reveal what's an idol in your life. The second is this, what is it that dominates your thought life? What is the thing that dominates and consumes your mind? Because that'll probably lead you to some potential idols in your life. Third, where are you tempted to put conditions on your walk with God? God, I will follow you if you do this. Or we'll be okay, but only if this happens. And if he doesn't perform in that area, then that's a deal breaker for you. That will lead you to some idols. The last one, are you willing to sac- where are you willing to sacrifice your convictions? That's an idol as well. And what this story tells us is that God must be our ultimate. That we cannot be bound by our blessing. That everything that we put in the place of the ultimate that's not God will curse us. That only God can fulfill the desires of our heart and everything else has a diminishing return. And if you think that when you have your name on a business card or when you have a ring on your finger then your soul will be satisfied. That's not true. And the thing is, God is the only one that if we fail him, he will forgive us. But all of these other things in our lives, if we fail them, they will curse us. We put all of our identity in our GPA and we fail that, then we'll crumble under the weight of that. If we put our identity in our beauty or in our physical appearance or in our fitness, then when we realize that we can never keep up with those elusive standards, we'll be crushed under that weight. God was the only one who was intended to be the source of our security, the source of our identity, and the affection of our heart. He is the only one who can bear the weight of our worship. Jesus, he says it this way, Seek first the kingdom of God 
and all of the, and all of its righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Everything else can come in and align around the one thing. And I'll close with this. This is a story, like I said, about God fighting for Abraham's heart. And God, he could have let him drift in his old age. He could have let him continue on this path of finding his identity in something that could never fulfill him. But God decides to fight for Abraham. And this is a story that foreshadows the gospel. It foreshadows another time when God will fight for his people. And this is how it ends uh, for Abraham. We see that just like with the cross, he provides the ultimate sacrifice. In verse 13, it says, Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So Abraham said that God would provide the sacrifice on this mountain. And hundreds of years later, there was another time when God would fight for the hearts of his people. Where God would have his son, his only son, Jesus, who he loved, carry the wood for his own sacrifice up the mountain, the very same mountain, this mountain where, where Abraham and Isaac went. It's the same mountain that Jesus went up that was later known as Calvary. And the mountain where the Lord said it would be provided. And Jesus became the sacrifice to free us from all of the non-gods in our life. And so, became the sacrifice so that we could be brought back into a relationship with the living God that God could be the thing, the safe place to make the root of our identity, the source of our security, the chief affections of our heart. That's what this story is about. So let's go to Q&A, and then I will close this up. Um, We had a lot of questions, but I think we only have time for one. So, um, if we struggle with an idol that is practical and not inherently bad, something financial stability, how do we let go of it? Can you repeat that question? Okay. If we struggle with an idol that isn't inherently bad and something practical, like, say, financial stability, how do we let let it go? That's a good question. I think it's a really good question because, like I mentioned, most of the idols that I think we struggle with the most are not inherently bad things, but they're things that we've, we've put too much, um, too much of ourselves into. And I think what we see in this passage is that we have the, the ability, the omniscient narrator, to tell us that this was always just a test. And what God was asking Abraham to do was not to sacrifice his son, but to lay down the thing at the altar that meant the most to him in his life, that he found all of this security and identity in. And I think sometimes for us, whether that's money or whether that's career, we have to do that to God as well. We have to be willing and genuinely willing to lay that at the altar of God, to lay that at the foot of the cross. And 
allow God to do with that what he wants. For some of us, that might mean we get the exact career that we think that we want, that God gives us these things that we think that we desire. And for some of us, it means that we lay these things down, and then God's allowed, God's able to realign our hearts towards something that he has that's better. But I think it always comes for us from a willingness to be able to lay these things down. And that's actually a good transition for us because I want us to do a little activity as we go into worship. Um, the Jesuits call it Ignatian contemplation, and it's where we kind of have this imaginative prayer where we imagine ourselves and these passages that we're reading and talking about. And so I want us all to, to do this little exercise if you, if you will humor me on this. But if we can all close our eyes for a little bit. So close your eyes, and I want you to picture yourself going through your daily life. Maybe you're in your apartment or your dorm room or Healy Lawn. Just imagine yourself going through your daily life and then just like God initiates Abram, he initiates with you and he says, Bonnie, Cameron, Adam, David, Jesse. He calls your name. And just like Abraham, I want you in, in your minds to respond with the intimate and ready response of here I am. Here I am, God, ready to listen, willing to obey. And then I want us to ask God in our minds what it might be that he wants us to lay on the altar. Except this isn't the altar that Abraham built, but this is the altar at the foot of the cross. What is God putting his finger on in your life as the thing that is your greatest susceptibility to make an idol in your life and in your hearts? What are some things that came up as we were talking tonight? What might God be speaking to you and saying, I want you to lay this down? I want you to think about that thing. And then I want you to picture yourself like Abraham walking up the mountain with it. And it's a long and lonely road. I want you to imagine you placing that thing, the altar at the foot of the cross. do that, I want us to just confess in our hearts that Jesus, this thing, this thing will not be my ultimate, that you are the chief affection of my heart, you are the source of my security, you are the root of my identity, and not this thing. We see in Abraham's story, after he passes this test and his heart is aligned in God's plans and purposes in his life were I want us to take a few minutes. This is a sober response tonight, and just you and God. So we go, we slowly go into worship. And I want you to know that you have something and someone bigger, more glorious, more loving, and more faithful to live for than this idol in your life. Don't waste it on others. And maybe it's nothing. Maybe you don't feel like there's anything in the place of God right now, and that's a good place to be. 
But I imagine for a lot of us, there is something in our lives that we've made an idol of. So the worship team is going to play. And in the middle of our tables, there are actually index cards and pencils. And I want to challenge us during worship to write these things down. You can fold it up. And I want to challenge us to be bold and to make our walk to this altar and to lay it down here. Then as we go through worship, I want to encourage you to either stand and sing or kneel and pray or pray with somebody from your small group and ask you to pray over this thing that you're writing down so that they can help you stay aligned on this journey, that they can help hold you accountable to that. So I'm going to say a quick prayer. And then let's do that. Let's take some time tonight. Let's reflect on these things in our life that are either idols are ready or just have a susceptibility to be them. And let's write them down. And let's leave them at the foot of the cross. Gracious and loving God, I thank you for the way that you have fought for each one of us. And I thank you for the way that you are fighting for us now. I thank you, Lord, that you are not content to let us, to give us to our idols, God. But I thank you, Lord, that you're fighting for our hearts and fighting to realign our faith, God, so that you can be our ultimate, and so that we can put our security, that we can put our identity, that we can give our affection to the only person who is capable of holding it all. I just lift up all of these things in your name. Amen.